What do you think makes God mad? What do you think makes him angry enough that he would, that he would cry? That might, that might sound like a, almost a sacrilegious or disrespectful question to ask, but we've seen in John, John 1.18, in fact, tells us that although no one has ever seen God, that the only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, has made him known. So I would ask again, what would make God so angry that he would cry? If you, if you think in something like sin, I think that's maybe part of it. If you're thinking maybe you know, unbelief, a lack of faith or trust in him, I think that's got something to do with it. Maybe the combination of these things would make God mad enough to cry. But we're going to see today an instance when Jesus, God in the flesh, did cry. And it's a moment where we see something revealed about the nature and character not only of Jesus, but of God and his intentions toward us that I think is very important for us to understand. You see, in John 11... Jesus goes to a funeral, and while Jesus will cry at this funeral, he doesn't seem to cry in the same way that you and I often cry at funerals. He he probably isn't crying because he lost someone, because although he had, he already knew he was about to raise this man from the dead. Spoiler alert, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Lazarus, that's what happens at the end, but he already knew. So I don't think he's crying because he's like, oh, I've lost him, I'm never going to see him again. He already knows what he's going to do. So I don't think he cried for the exact reasons that we often do. When he, when he arrived at the funeral for his, his dear friend Lazarus, one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha, comes out to meet him, and when he's done talking to her and comforting her, she sends for Mary. Mary comes out to speak to Jesus, and when she does, this whole crowd of Jews comes with her, people who had come from all around in the, in the city they lived, and probably from Jerusalem, because they lived not too far, just outside Jerusalem, in fact, and this seems to have been a pretty well-known family, and so here come all of these people following Mary, and they're all wailing, and they're all crying, and they're all mourning, and it might help a little bit to understand something about funerals at the time. They weren't sort of the, the quiet, solemn experiences that we think of when we think of like a, you know, a 45-minute funeral service or something like that. These were, these were experiences that would go on for days and days where people would wail and weep aloud. It wasn't uncommon for mourners to be hired to weep and to cry at these events. And so these were not things, this was not you know, a quiet, kind of somber, solemn experience. This was very loud, it was very mournful, it was very open. And there were many people who had come to mourn the loss of Lazarus. Lazarus had died four days earlier But when Mary and the crowd with her approach Jesus, they're still weeping. They're still mourning. John 11.33 tells us, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Unfortunately, the, the translation greatly moved or deeply moved isn't very specific and nor does it really convey what was usually the, the essence or the meaning of the underlying Greek word, which usually meant someone was indignant or angry about something. The New Living Translation does a little bit of a better job giving the sense of what was happening. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. 
Verse 38 says that Jesus was angry again as he stood outside Lazarus' tomb. It says, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. What makes Jesus mad? What's he mad about at a funeral? Doesn't he know funerals are about sad, not mad? Do you remember John 10.10? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give life. The whole point of the Gospel of John is that we might believe in Jesus and that by believing, we might have life in his name. So as Jesus looks at what death has done to those that he has created, to those that he has come to save, he's mad. He's mad over what's been stolen, hope and purpose and joy. He's mad that a sort of fatalistic, deterministic, just resignation settles in the hearts of people who think that death is inevitable and that the defining feature of human existence is that one day we will no longer exist. He's mad at sin that brought death into the world and causes separation from the presence of God. And though he's compassionate and merciful, he is indignant at the unbelief of people who are wailing as if there is no tomorrow when they are in the presence of life. You'd better believe that Jesus was angry. And out of his indignation at this death came a moment of revealing the glory of God that demonstrated to us what it means to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You should believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but what does a a person who's characterized by this belief do? What do they look like? How do their lives change? What does it matter if you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? What does a person who really believes this do? Let's go back to the beginning of the story to understand these things. You remember from the end of John chapter 10 that the Pharisees and some of the Jewish leaders were so angry with Jesus that they wanted to arrest him and to kill him. And so Jesus had gone away from Jerusalem for a while to avoid them. And while he was away, he got word that one of his, his friends, in fact, the message he received says, the one whom you love. So a dear friend, he got, he got word that Lazarus had passed away. Or not that he passed away, excuse me, that he was very ill. And when he got this message, Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That sounds very familiar to other things we've heard Jesus say, doesn't it? Like, remember John chapter 9, when he healed the blind man, Jesus answered to his disciples' question of who sinned to cause this man to be born blind. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed through him. John 11, 5 notes that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, he loved Lazarus, and so when we read in the next verse, in verse 6, that Jesus stayed where he was for two more days, it may come as a bit of a surprise. If you love somebody and they're ill and they might die, you kind of think, maybe you go visit them. Maybe you at least go comfort them, or in Jesus' case, maybe you go heal the guy, right? And so it's a little bit of a surprise. Jesus doesn't seem very urgent about this. Why didn't he go right away? Jesus' disciples probably thought that he wasn't going back immediately because of the danger posed by the Jewish leaders in the region since this was so near Jerusalem. And 
And so they probably thought, well, he's not going back for that reason. But when he told them that they were going to go to Judea two days later to see Lazarus, they questioned the wisdom that, 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 of that decision because the Jews were still seeking to stone him. Read Jesus' response to them in verses 9 to 10, John 11, 9 to 10. It says, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of life or the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This sounds very familiar and similar to other things we've read that Jesus says. In fact, again, it it sounds very similar to something we we heard from John chapter 9 in verses 4 to 5. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We, we, We know from the Gospel of John, Jesus himself is the light of the world. So whenever he spoke about walking or working in the light, or while it was still day, he wasn't just speaking in general terms. He was talking about fulfilling God's purpose for him. He was saying, I've got to do the things that God sent me to do in the timing God gives me to do it. Jesus only did the will of his Father. He only did what he saw his Father doing. Listen to these scriptures we've covered already. John 4, 34. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Or John, uh, excuse me, that was John 5, 19. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was all about doing what God had given him to do, the will of his Father. He organized his life and his death around doing what God had given him to do, bringing glory to God in everything. So let's read on about what takes place between him and his disciples when he gets word that Lazarus has fallen sick. In John 11, 11 to 16, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. What a a bold man. What a brave guy. I love these ironic little tidbits from the apostles, from the disciples, not because I judge them, but because I identify with them. And I think, hey, if there was hope for them, there's hope for me as well. Jesus is trying to tell them that that with him, death does not have the last word. And that he's going to go and reveal the glory of God. And they're giving him their grandmother's advice. Jesus, he's asleep. Let him rest. He'll be all right. That's that's their grandmother's medical advice. And he's busy telling them, I'm going to bring him life. And they're like, oh, just let him rest, Jesus. And then, you know, you've got brave Thomas, noble as he was, still worried about the Jews seeking to kill Jesus. He, he, he you know, got, we're going to go and die with him. Doesn't understand what's, what's going on or what's taking place. And he actually ends up abandoning Jesus when push comes to shove, like most of the rest of the apostles did. But I have to think that there are moments in my life where Jesus must be thinking, Stephen, haven't we gone over this? multiple times there's a purpose here trust me and it will lead to God's glory 
The opening of this story, the opening of the story stresses God's purpose in this. Lazarus has died, but God has a purpose even in that. He had a purpose for Jesus not going immediately when he heard the news that Lazarus was sick. You know, one of the things that death does for people, for mankind, is it robs people of purpose, doesn't it? How many times have you heard someone say something like, he's gone too soon? As if we're saying, well, you know, he, he wasn't able to do everything he should have or could have that God intended for him to do or, or, or something similar. Now, don't get me wrong. If you've said that, I understand. I've probably said it myself, and I've definitely felt that way. But you've heard people say this. We have a sense that death cuts things short, that it, it, it stops them where they should continue to go before everything that, that should be has been accomplished. What's more, the threat of death also keeps people from, from real purpose in their lives. How many of you have ever heard the acronym or you remember the acronym YOLO? I think it's kind of fallen out of favor, but you, you, you only live once, right? Just go do it. You only live once. And I think some people really think this is true. And so rather than living, rather than living for an absolute objective purpose in their lives, what they do is they search for something they feel gives them meaning. They search for something subjective in their lives, but that weak, subjective purpose doesn't provide a foundation for courage or faithfulness or trust in the face of hardship or death, because death robs you of your subjective purpose. When you die, your little subjective purpose that you created for yourself, it dies with you. Now, I know we haven't gotten to this part of the story, but I already told you, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, so that's a spoiler, but Jesus is going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And as such, Jesus gives us purpose. He gives purpose to our lives, purpose to our trials, he gives purpose to our troubles, purpose to to our difficulties, but we need to walk with him in that purpose. And walking in the purpose of Jesus means that we should abandon the other purposes that drive us and instead make Jesus the driving purpose of our lives. Make following him the reason that we do what we do. Sometimes money or security or a relationship with, with a, a, a loved one or a relationship with a, a lover or a, a, a seeking for approval from people or some achievement or in your field or notoriety or a desire for power or pleasure, sometimes those become the purposes of people's lives, the things that motivate them in the morning. What, what gets you up? What motivates you to do hard things? What motivates you when when the things that you thought you wanted to do are no longer so easy to do and you have to keep pushing through? Where do you look for self-worth in those moments? Believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life means finding your purpose in Jesus. It means the reason for your life is to know and to follow him. And if he's the resurrection and the life, then death can't cut that purpose off. This involves Submitting all of our preconceived ideas to God, to Jesus, to, so that we can know and follow him. It, it means submitting all of our motives to Christ. We don't offer him advice about the best way to live. Like the disciples offered Jesus advice about you know, how Lazarus was going to get better. You don't offer the purpose of life advice 
about purpose. He gives you advice about the purpose of life. More than that, he is the purpose of life. And sometimes we get this mixed up, don't we? We start thinking, you know, I've got other purposes and Jesus is a purpose. Jesus is not a purpose. And just as we'll read in a few moments, Jesus does not say, I am a life. He does not say, I came to give life. He says, I am the life. And you don't offer the life advice on how to live. You don't offer the author of purpose advice on how to live. You bring your life to him and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. If you're the life, I want in on that. If you're the life, if you're the resurrection, then I want to give everything that I've done, everything that I've sought, and every motive of my soul to you so that I might follow life and not just keep following wherever my purposes lead, which, according to the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to man. But in the end, it leads to death. But the way of Christ leads to life. And you need to know this. As you offer your your motives, your talents, your interests, your circumstances to God, and you do, it, you do it in a couple of ways. You do it first by finding out what he wants in his word. And then you spend time seeking him in prayer. And you develop a relationship with him in which he speaks to you. And you begin to recognize how his voice sounds and what he wants from you in your life. And, and you begin to follow what he's given you to do. And you give him your, your interests and your talents. And you need to know this as well. He's not done with you. It doesn't matter where you're at or what you've done so far. He's not done with you. The way you fulfill your purpose can change over time, but God still has a purpose for your life. And the primary question to ask regarding purpose is, how can I glorify God in this? How can I glorify God in my money? How can I glorify God in my career? How do I glorify God in my parenting? How do I glorify God in being a child and honoring my parents? How do I glorify God in my family how do I glorify God and fill in the blank? And when you answer that question according to Scripture and the guidance of the Spirit, you will begin to find purpose. You will have life. You'll have life in Jesus. Related to the purposes of God is hope. Life without purpose is hopeless. If there's no goal or aim to life, no trust in the sovereignty of God's plan that he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then there is no stable foundation for any kind of hope in life. Your hope will have to be built on something like your own ability to achieve or the progress of humanity, but death steals these kinds of hope. It puts an end to the anticipation of what you can accomplish, and, and in a larger sense, it puts a real damper on optimism concerning human progress. Yes, we can launch satellites into orbit, we can generate art with artificial intelligence, and we can cure more diseases than we've ever been able to. We're also very adept at creating and causing new diseases, it seems, taking advantage of others, and finding more and more sophisticated ways of killing one another. So you'll forgive me if I'm not the optimist in human progress that Elon Musk or Bill Gates are. And by the way, I've just noticed it seems to be a lot easier to be an optimist about humanity when you're one of the wealthiest men alive. So maybe their advice about optimism is not the advice we ought to be taking. I'm not saying that there is no hope. I'm just saying that the ultimate hope for humanity is not ourselves. Let's read on 
Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Lazarus had been dead four days. Just as we have superstitions regarding death and, and graveyards and things like that, they had superstition and, lores rega- and lore regarding death and what happened. Some people thought that the spirit of a dead person would hover around for like four days after the person died. And so perhaps one of the reasons that Jesus waited until that fourth day was so that everybody would be convinced this guy is really dead. He's, he's dead and, and like really dead and buried and done. Like there's no hope of this guy coming back. And so perhaps that's part of it. Martha had all the same questions we have about death, even as Christians. She wasn't doubting Jesus, but she did wonder why he wasn't there for Lazarus. We, we often wonder similar things when one of our loved ones dies, don't we? Why now? Couldn't God have prevented this? If Jesus is so powerful, why didn't he do something. And Jesus told Martha that her brother would rise again, and understandably, Martha thought Jesus was referring to something way off in the future, the resurrection on the last day that many Jews believed would happen at the end of time, but that's not what Jesus meant. And so Jesus redirects her attention from her brother's plight, his death, to himself with this famous revelation, I am the resurrection and the life. You have to think he said it with some sternness. I know we like to to imagine him saying it in a very comforting way, but it says that he's starting to get angry about these things. Not that he's angry with Martha specifically, but just that he's angry with the the whole plight of humanity and the way that they've followed sin to death and the way that it's ended up and the weeping and the wailing that it's brought with it when he intends to bring life and the fact that he is the life standing there. You have to think he says it not like, I am the resurrection, sweetheart. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's trying to get her attention like he tries to get ours. He wants her to understand, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus did not say, I resurrect people from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection. He did not say, I give life, but I am the life. Jesus didn't want Martha to have faith in some vague thing she thought might happen in the distant future. She wanted, or he wanted her to have faith in him. And people often respond to death like Martha did. You'll hear people comfort themselves by repeating things they've heard like, I know you're still with us, or I know she's looking down on us now, or we'll all be together one day. And whether or not these things are true is not the only point. The point is that they are vague. On what basis do you believe that this person is looking down on you? On what basis do you believe you'll be together again? Is it merely wishful thinking? And what does this belief mean for you now? Jesus wanted Martha, and he wants us, to have something more than wishful thinking about life and death. 
He wants us to have hope. And real hope is not an abstraction about the future. Real hope is based on Jesus. D.A. Carson points out, up until now we have learned of the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life. Now in the last sign, the last sign in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives life itself an anticipation of the fruitfulness of his own death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And believing in that gives hope. We hope for the resurrection and, our own bo- uh, and the resurrection of our own bodies based on Jesus' own death and resurrection. Remember John, in John 10, Jesus said that he would lay down his life so that he could take it up again. The hope we have is not based on a vague wish for things to be better one day, but on the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Like Pastor Mason reminded us of last week. When he rose, he demonstrated that he is the resurrection and the life. And the hope that we have in Jesus extends from a hope in the future to a hope that should change our lives right now. Jesus did not only say that whoever believes in him and dies will be resurrected, but that everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. But what did he mean by that? He certainly couldn't have meant that believers' bodies never perish. As glorious as Lazarus' resuscitation was, you'll note that he's not still around, or we'd be having him give his own testimony this morning. He's not here. He died. Again, poor guy had to die twice. Go back to John 10.10 again. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. At John 11.26, Jesus was talking about a quality of life that begins now and is guaranteed by the resurrection. He was speaking of eternal life, not merely as something that will be given in the future to people, but something that is given to those who believe right now. Eternal life is not an abstract idea we wait to occur, but is the gift Christ gives to all who believe in him. And God's word shows us that without Jesus, we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. The apostle Paul describes our situation this way in Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Imagine humanity without Jesus, like zombies. We are the living dead. We walk around, we talk, we work, we eat, we play, but we are dead. But Jesus is saying that when you believe in him, not just when you believe about him, but in him, you trust him with your life and you follow him, you're no longer the living dead, you become the living living, I guess. You're really alive, so to speak. Death no longer has the same hold on you that it once did, not only because you believe something about the future, but because Jesus has given you life right now. You've heard the phrase, live like you were dying, right? An interesting idea. They put it in multiple songs, I think, and I guess there's something to it. But once you become a believer, you can just start living like you're alive. You don't have to live like you're dying. You can live like Jesus has made you alive forever in him. So the question, I guess, is are you? Are you living like you're alive or like you're dying? 
Because those who live like they're dying, they try to cram their lives all, full of all kinds of selfish things. In fact, that's probably what drives a lot of people. That's what underlies a lot of the motives of the human heart is my time is limited. I've only got so much. I've got to cram what I can in, and so I'm going to do what best pleases me. But for the Christian, we're liberated from that. Not that we're liberated from a sense of urgency because we know Jesus is coming back and people need to know there's an urgency. I'm not saying there's not, but what I am saying is that you can stop living like you're dying and you can start living like you're alive in Jesus Christ. Are you experiencing life that is no longer defined by trying to hurry up and get what you can out of it before it's gone? Do you know life that isn't driven by fear but but carried along by faith in Christ? Do you have a hope that isn't a vague wish for the future but guides your life into the purposes of God for you today? This kind of hope only comes by believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. One of the properties of this abundant life, this hopeful life, is that it's characterized by God's presence. This is the the last note I want to make to you about what it means to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and life. It means that you can live in God's presence. Death steals presence, doesn't it? It's the essence of death, right? When you lose someone, you say they're gone, and you feel it. You, you, You know they're no longer there to hug or to talk to. You lose their presence, and we've all experienced that. And it is a sort of metaphor for what happens in our relationship with God. Our sin and the death that it results in means that we have lost the presence of God in our lives. It's a, it's, this feeling of absence is an analogy for what sin does in our relationship with God. It brings death to us by robbing us of his presence. And that's bad because we were made for that presence. We were made to know him. And that's one reason why when Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus in John eleven thirty eight, 38, it again tells us that Jesus was indignant He was angry because death was robbing people of the presence of God. Look at how he starts his prayer in verse 31. Father. Excuse me, verse 41, I think it is. Father, he says. Not our Father, not the Father, just Father. This is the relationship Jesus had with the Father, and it's the kind of personal relationship that he wants us to have as well. He he wants us to have because he's opened it to us through his resurrection and through his death and resurrection. Look at, look at his whole prayer, John eleven forty one to 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had prayed about this, was it? He was only praying publicly like this so that people would connect what he was about to do to his relationship with the Father in heaven and the reason that he had come to earth in the first place. He wanted to help them make that connection. So he stands, he looks up to heaven, and he says, Father. He wanted them to believe so that they could have life. Turn to John 17, 3. It says this, Jesus speaking to his disciples, this is eternal life, that they, know, or excuse me, praying to God in with his disciples, says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Jesus was setting his disciples up in this moment to understand what it means to have eternal life. That is, what it means to know the Father and Son through the Holy Spirit's presence in you. This is not some little religious thing done in the corner of your heart somewhere or a prayer you prayed one time and then it goes no further than that. This is the transformation of life itself. It's as if you've been raised from the dead. Better, you have been raised from the dead. He has brought you out of the primary kind of death, death that means a separation from God's presence, and he brings you out of that, and he makes you alive in the presence of God. Do we know the power of that relationship? Do we know the power of the relationship to God that we have that's available through Jesus? Do we live with the consciousness of his presence like Jesus, who stood before the tomb and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Do we know the depth of his love, the perfection of his wisdom, the confidence that his presence gives? If you believe in Jesus, you do know it to some measure. You have access to the presence of God, but maybe, maybe that presence has been obscured. Maybe it's been been covered over by temptations and relentless doctrines and philosophies of this world that tempt you to forget or to ignore God's presence. Maybe it's been obscured by some sin in your life that you have refused to let go of, and God wants to be near you, but the essence of death that sin brings is separation, and what you need to do is confess and repent and be done with that so that the presence of God may be felt in your life again. Surely there is a greater awareness and abundance of God's presence. That is, a greater abundance and awareness of life with which we should be living, the abundant life that Jesus gives. Our eyes are too often cast down to the circumstances around us and to the temptations and troubles that we deal with. Notice that when Jesus stands in front of a tomb, he lifts his eyes up. It's a little different than what we do when we stand around tombs, isn't it? We look down at the marker, we lower, we lower caskets into the ground, and we look down. Jesus stands in front of tombs, and he lifts his eyes, and he says, Father, I'm praying to you so that they might know that you're the one who's doing this. He wanted them to understand that there was a presence of the Father available to them through what he was about to do that we're going to get to in the next chapters of John as he would offer his own life and then he would rise from the dead. He wanted them to know the presence of God was available to them. Of course, you know the end of the story. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he came out still wrapped in his grave clothes and Jesus said, bind him and let him go. And that's, that's what he does for all of those who believe, isn't it? He calls us out of the grave He says, unbind him, let him go, unbind her, let her go. But actually, that's not the end of the story. This is such a profound event that it spread like wildfire. The news of it was going all over the place. The Jewish religious leaders who were already looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus were now really going to ramp up their efforts. And we get insight into what they were thinking and how they were deliberating with one another at the end of the chapter when they get together for a meeting. And we read there in John eleven forty seven to 52 that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that is the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, 
You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Notice that even here, in this den of thieves who wanted to steal, kill, and destroy, God's purpose for his son could not be stopped. The hope offered by Jesus could not be overcome because he would die for us. As the high priest, him meaning it as a threat, and saying, we need to do this, we need to kill him because they'll come and take our nation if we don't. He meant it as a bad thing, not knowing he was speaking the truth. Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for them, but for you and for me. Even if Caiaphas didn't know what he meant, and he would, God was going to gather the children of God into a relationship with God so that they could know his presence. You know, a sad man wouldn't willingly go to the cross, would he? It would take a madman. I don't mean out of his mind. I mean a man angry enough to do something as drastic as go to the cross. A sad little man would not endure the suffering Jesus endured for you. But the Son of God who is angry about what death has done and the way that it has separated you from the presence of God and the way that it has taken you away from the life that he intended you to have and it makes us weep and wail and moan and and look down when our eyes should be lifted up. A man angry enough about that who is also the Son of God. He did it. He did it because he was angry, and he's still angry. He's still angry when we don't live in the life that he he died to give us. He's still angry when we don't choose to, to realize that if we will trust him, there's hope and there's purpose. I don't mean he's angry in the sense that he doesn't want you. I mean he's angry that he, because he does. I mean he's angry because he wants you to have that kind of life. I mean, he's indignant at the thought that you would reject what he has to offer because it is so good and so much better than what the world offers. He's angry as he stands outside tombs because he wants to call people out of tombs. And he's angry when our only response as a church is to weep and to wail and to mourn the state of a world that is dead instead of becoming indignant because we know the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life, church. What would it look like if you were to live your life not like the living dead, but like the living living? What would it mean if you were to believe in your day-to-day circumstances that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? What purpose would it give you? What hope would it infuse your life with? And what presence of God would you be welcoming into all of those circumstances because your faith was, listen, my life doesn't have to be easy, doesn't have to be simple, it doesn't have to be without trouble, doesn't have to be without pain, but I have Jesus. And those things can't steal purpose because Jesus is purpose. Those things can't take hope because Jesus is hope. And not even death can take life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Would you bow your head with me for a moment?
Perhaps you're here and you don't have that kind of life in Christ. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to him. You've never heard that he's the resurrection of life. He died for you. He rose again. Maybe you've heard it, but you heard it as some kind of vague idea, an analogy, a philosophy, and you've never heard it as the gospel, the truth. I want you to know this morning that it is not a story. It is history. It's what God has done for you. He sent his son Jesus to die. He died on that cross for you. Even as we read today, he died for you. He died for the nation of Israel, but he also died for all of those that God wants to bring into his family. And the scripture tells us that those he wants to bring in are anyone who will believe in his son. Today, if you've not believed in his son, I want to warn you that while you might be chasing things that feel like they give you purpose for a moment or hope for a little while, there's an end to those things. Death will bring an end to those things. Pain can bring an end to them. Trials can bring an end to them. But there is a kind of life that Jesus offers, eternal life, that death can't touch. And if you don't have that kind of life in Jesus this morning, it starts when you confess that you've run from him, you've been separated from him by your sin, and you believe in Jesus. And then you, you simply offer your life to him. You say, Jesus, I have been living as if I could control my own life and now I desire to follow you. And it doesn't mean you've got it figured out about what that's gonna look like at this point. It just means that you've encountered Jesus, you've heard the gospel, and you believe that Jesus is worth trusting so you're going to trust him. That's what we mean by saving faith. You believe Jesus is worth trusting. He died for me. God raised him from the dead. I don't know what that will look like 30 years from now exactly. I just know he's worth trusting. I'm going to trust him. And today, if you've heard the gospel and you believe Jesus is worth trusting and you want to put your trust in him, I'm going to ask you to do something. And I don't want this something to be a substitute for you doing the other things that are necessary, for you telling someone else growing in faith with other believers, hearing and reading God's word, prayer. I don't, this is not a substitute for that, but it's a way for you to take an initial step forward, an initial step of saying, I trust Jesus and I want to follow him. If that's you, you don't have that kind of relationship with God through faith in Christ today. You've never given your life to him, surrendered to him in faith, and you want to do that this morning. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? If you don't have that kind of relationship with God through faith in Jesus and you want to have that today, you want to put your trust in him, you want to believe, or you've heard the gospel and you do believe and you want to confess that belief this morning. Is there anybody like that? I don't see any hands, so we're going to move on to this. Christian, Jesus died and rose to give you abundant life. It's not the abundant life of prosperity preachers. It's the abundant life of purpose, hope, and the presence of God. Do you know those things in your life? If you don't, what's the Holy Spirit touching in your heart, putting his finger on, saying, you know, this is causing separation between you and the Lord? What's he putting his finger on and saying, you've put your hope here rather than your hope in me? What purpose is he touching in your life and saying, you know, you've been motivated by this. This has been driving you, but this is not my will. This is not my plan. What's he touching in your heart this morning? I want to take just a moment, and I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment, but for a moment, will you just, where you are, in your own words, 
say, Lord, I believe there's more to abundant life than I'm experiencing right now. And if there's anything getting in the way of that, if I'm distracted or, or I'm living for other purposes, if, if, I have, if I have bought into the lie that there's some other better purpose or life than the one you give, would you reveal that to me? Would you help me to see it? And then, Lord, give me a willing spirit to get rid of it, to give it to you, to be done with it. Would you do that for just a moment in the quietness of your own heart or in, the, in, your, own, in your own words, in the quietness of your own seat? Would you just begin to, to ask him, Lord, am I living in the hope and purpose in the life that you give? Am I living in your presence as I should? Father, today I lift up my eyes I don't cast them down to just the worries and concerns. I lift them up to you. Father, I want to live in your presence. Where's the hindrance, Lord? What's blocking that? What sin is harbored that is keeping me from living in that fullness that I should have? Lord, where have I laid my own plans rather than living for your purposes? Where have I said with my lips, I want to do God's will. But with my feet, I've said, I want to do my will. Jesus, would you reveal these things to us? We believe you are the resurrection of the life. Lord, it would be foolish of us to claim that we believe this and then to hold on to things that that keep us away from knowing the fullness of hope or purpose or, or your presence that you want to give to us. So, Father, we ask that you would move in our hearts by your Holy Spirit and bring just an awareness of our need for you and an awareness of conviction that we need to be right with you in whatever area that might be. Lord, perhaps it's that we haven't spent the time with you that we should. Perhaps it's that we're looking at things with our eyes that are distracting us, things that are not, that are not pure and holy. Perhaps it's that we have allowed motives to creep in that are more about the of selfish desire than about honoring Christ. Lord, what is it? Would you reveal it to us? And Lord, would you give us the willing spirit to say, I want to know real life. That as we stand before you this morning, Jesus, and you look at us and you see the places in our, in our, in our daily actions and in our lives that keep us from knowing true, abundant life to the fullest extent that we could. Lord, help us to hear your words. I am the resurrection and the life. And help us not to make something ambiguous out of it, but to understand that you mean that there is a presence, a power, a hope, a purpose right now that you want to give to us. And I ask that you'd help us not to resist it. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And now, Jesus, we rejoice in you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. We thank you that we once, though we once walked in darkness, we now walk in light. We thank you that we were once children of sin, but now we are children of God. We thank you that once we were in the domain of darkness, but we have been transferred to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that we no longer walk in the death that once characterized us, but we now walk in real life, and we praise you and offer you worship for it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Prayer partners, if you would, make your way forward. Church, if you need to go, uh, please do. We look forward to seeing you. If you're going to be here for serve night tonight or on Wednesday, if you do have something that you'd like to pray with someone about, our prayer partners are available. They'd love to pray with you. 
until we see you again, go in God's grace and in his peace.